Welcome to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Corey Lumberg from Altus Performance, and we are pumped to share an interview this week that is probably a little outside of the box of our typical guests. Cameron had a fascinating conversation with two-time Motor Grand Prix world champ Casey Stoner, and while that might seem worlds away from our comfort zone in the world of golf, we are always trying to look outside of our sport and look at what other athletes do and, and borrow their best practices so that we can apply them to what we're doing here at Altus. You've probably heard us discuss study tours that we've been to before where we visit other teams and, and coaches. And we were at the Red Bull Performance Institute in LA a couple of years ago where we learned about how these athletes that put themselves at serious and real risk of bodily harm are, are learning how to handle the stress and fear that is inherent in their sport. So they're not just afraid of hitting it in the water and making a bogey. If they make a mistake in the face of this immense risk, they're in real danger. And Casey is one of the all-time greats. And, you know, he's flying around a track with no roll bars or the protection of a car. And one small mistake means big consequences. But he has figured out a way to cope with that accompanying stress and, for lack of a better word, perform fearlessly. So if you're like me and are not all that familiar with the world of, of racing motorcycles, don't tune out. This conversation between Cam and Casey is, is fascinating. Casey shares his story and his strategies for overcoming fear in high-pressure environments, how he's overcome some serious injuries from sport, and there's a bunch of ideas that can be directly applied to what we do as long as you're willing and, and open-minded enough to look outside of, of the narrow focus of, of your domain or sport. Plus, Casey is Australian, so that means double dose of the lovely Australian accent this week. And before we get into it, just a little bit of housekeeping. We're running a giveaway for three of our listeners to win a custom set of Titleist Vokey SM8 wedges. So head to our Instagram for more details on that. That runs through February 11th. And one of the conditions is to leave a review on iTunes for this podcast. And even if you don't enter the giveaway, we'd love if you'd take a quick second to leave a review. It can help others discover this podcast. And, and we appreciate your feedback as we continue to grow and get better at providing you value through the interviews and conversations that we share here. But I know that you're ready to get to this one. A quick shout out to our friends at Total Golf Trainer. The Total Golf Trainer line of products are designed to provide instant feedback for golfers of all skill levels to help solve a wide variety of swing issues. And we haven't really seen an issue that it can't solve from path issues to improving club face control and even body mechanics. Pretty much any issue that you have, the Total Golf Trainer can help. The 3.0 kit is the first multi-tool training aid that is completely custom to your golf swing with the easy-to-use adjustable training rods that can be attached to your club or your body, and you can increase or decrease the difficulty level so anyone from juniors to beginners to pros will all benefit. We've enjoyed getting creative to find all the different ways that we can use the Total Golf Trainer, and they've got some great videos on their website that show it in use. So to learn more and watch those videos on how to improve your game with the Total Golf Trainer, visit TotalGolfTrainer.com or find them on social media at Total Golf Trainer. But now on to our episode. So the place I'd like to start is building some context for the conversation, given that most people that you would talk to, in fact, I'd hazard a guess at say 99.9% .9 of humans have no idea what it's like to number one, ride a motorcycle, let alone ride MotoGP. So if we can use that as a starting point, maybe you've put yourself in a position where you've met someone at a cocktail party and they're interested in what you do or did and you had to describe for them what it is that you spent eons cultivating and then competing at at a world-class level. Hard to describe. I mean, it's more, um, it's more a sensation and a feeling with, uh, with motorcycles. I mean, when most kids 
when they get on a young age, you know, something comes over them and it just becomes sort of a, a bit of an addiction. Some people say it's the adrenaline rush. For me, it was competitiveness. I liked, you know, anything with a track. So the more I could do something and the better I could get at it, even as at a young age, that's all I wanted to do. So yeah, being able to make a career of something that um, scares the hell out of you at times and, and is a little dangerous was really fantastic for me. It's, it's, it gave me everything that I wanted in terms of it's physical, mentally demanding. Like I said, it, it scares you and whether that is what adrenaline actually is or not, it's um, something that I've, I've thought about quite a bit. But yeah, just having uh, a sport that I feel covered every base in terms of, you know, like I said, having to overcome fears, having to, to be physically fit at a, at a very, very high level. And then at the same time, you, you're trying to do everything to that fine detail with intents. And that's something that I really, really enjoyed. Like I said, anything that I can continue to do and see improvements and do improvements, I absolutely loved it. Yeah, you hit on many threads there that I hope to kind of pull on in the conversation, the fear, the risk, the splitting hairs, the difference makers between succeeding or not succeeding in a race or a season. And we'll get to those depths, hopefully, getting to to like unpack the conversation very granular level. But before we get there, maybe a, a different way to ask a very similar question is when I'm around some of the best players in the world and they're playing in pro-ams, they're playing with recreational golfers who know golf only through the lens of playing at their local country club. And they ask the question about, well, what's it like to play Augusta National in major championship condition? Or even sometimes you'll hear players in caddies as they're prepping for majors. One that comes to mind is Chambers Bay. Jordan was successful in winning the US Open there. And the conversation was tossed around, okay, what would his caddy, Michael Gorella, go around and shoot at Chambers Bay or any major championship golf for that matter? So the task and the difficulty of playing major championship golf is to put in, is put into context in those types of conversations. So can you give the listeners a view inside the helmet into the ins and outs of a race, the speed of the bike, the G's that you're pulling, et cetera, et cetera? Very, very difficult to, to explain. G-forces will sort of start there. We've only put data on the bikes a couple of times, but G's got anywhere up from 1.8 to 2 G's on the brakes. And with that's straight line G's. That's straight line G's mm-hmm. on the brakes. And then uh, I suppose acceleration, I think it was between 1 to 1.2 G's with, you know, a tyre that's, um, that's got plenty of grip in it. So as soon as the tyre goes off a little bit, the G's go down. and all that basically without being strapped into it. So everything's physical, everything's, you're holding yourself up at the same time you're trying to control your brake pressures and coming out of the corners, you're trying to control how much throttle output, all those sort of things you're doing. It makes it a little bit complicated, I suppose. Speed-wise, we, we sort of got up in the range of 360, basically, towards the end of, the of MotoGP now. Yeah, mm-hmm. kilometers per hour, which is the quick what, 220, the hour, yeah. 225 <laughs> mile an hour, something right. like that. I don't have it in off the top of my head, to be honest. It sounds good to me. So, yeah, a, a little bit quick and we don't have any roll cages or anything like that around us. So it's pretty much as fast as you can go. Like I said, without having safety around you, you're not strapped in like you are in a race car or anything like that. So when you do come off, you know, you, you're straight on the ground. You know, we've got pretty uh, high tech leathers and things these days, which do a good job of, of protecting us. But as soon as you make a small mistake, it can be quite catastrophic. Whereas a small mistake in a car, you lock a brake, you run wide, 
you know, you might run off either into grass or into a wall, but generally you've got, you know, a bit of protection around you. Whereas us, as soon as we make that mistake, we're straight onto the, onto the ground. And I think, you know, some of the crashes we've had uh, are well over 200 kilometers an hour, 250, 260 kilometers an hour. And, you know, you're literally just getting thrown through the air like a rag doll. So that's where the fear comes into it and having to overcome that, especially after a crash and get back out there, get back up and, uh, and continue. So. There's lots of elements to it. There's no really way to describe it. Anybody out there that's ridden street bikes before, the, the most powerful street bikes still don't even come close to what a MotoGP bike is. Essentially, it's the difference between sort of touring cars and, and Formula One is what, you know, super bikes and street bikes are compared to MotoGP. They're just a sort of another level. They're another level of stiffness and, and difficulty to ride. Tell me about a typical race week. When does the race week begin? How long is the duration of the race once it ultimately comes? Race week just starts Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but normally we get there around Wednesday, start discussing everything with the teams, etc. Thursday, there's promotional work, all those sort of things, but we do not get on track until Friday. So where, you know, there's sort of no practice rounds like you get with golf, but we do get our practice sessions, which are Friday qualifying on Saturday and then normally race on Sunday, which is about 45 minutes our races. Tell me about the early week arrival and the discussion with teams. Is that tactical? Is that reading, reacting to how you were riding and also how the bike was reacting a previous event? Or Normally we, we have quite a bit of a, um, a download, I suppose, after the previous event. And because you're going to another circuit, unless it's similar to the previous one, it's normally, it, it's somewhat a similar discussion to what you had the week before, but it's so different everywhere we go, just like when you go to a different golf course. It's so different, the conditions that we're basically discussing for the coming race, not too much about the previous one. In general, you have a, a fairly similar base, I suppose, like throughout the season. To follow. Yeah, pretty much. And you sort of just build on that depending on how you're feeling, depending on how your body is, injuries, all that sort of thing. And then we'll discuss basically what the weather's going to be doing, what tyre selections we have for that weekend because Bridgestone or, or Michelin, whatever the tyre manufacturer is, they'll bring different tyres to each race. And, yeah, basically you've got to go through your setups. Some bikes and some manufacturers, we were able to have different swing arms or different um, chassis, etc., which would work better on certain circuits depending on grip levels. So there was all these different elements we had to discuss going into the weekend. And Can you give us some idea of the cost involved in putting one of these bikes together and the week-to-week the -week ongoing cost race? Um, that's nearly impossible to, to put a number on it. You've got several manufacturers. All of them would have different budgets and go about their, their department different ways. The only thing I, I knew at one point, it was 2.5 million euro to lease a bike which was a, a second tier bike, basically, not, your, not a factory bike because they are only given to certain riders. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't just go up and say, I want to lease that. But some of the teams and riders could lease a second tier bike. I think it was 2.5 million euro each. And that doesn't include spare parts and things. So the prices go up from there. And that's only to lease because you're never allowed to have that bike afterwards. There's such prototypes that they always go back to the factory. So, yeah, that's about the only costs that i ever got out of it uh because everybody likes to keep things you know pretty pretty close to themselves and they don't uh they don't give too many 
too much information. Sure, away. unreal. And the length of a season, the number of countries you travel to. Um, again, countries I couldn't um, I couldn't rattle off. Trying to remember. Yeah, we we do about um, eighteen to nineteen races a year. Um, we've got about five or six official tests throughout the year because we're only allowed to go and practice on these bikes at the official tests. We can't go and you know ride them in between during the week. We were never allowed to practice on our race bikes. So there was only a certain amount of tests, two to three tests before the start of the season, one or two tests during the season, and then one or two tests after the season, depending on how they structured it for the year. And they were the only tests that we were allowed to do. It was the only practice we were allowed to do on those bikes outside of the race event. Yeah, maybe a question just coming out of Inca is, but why not? Why were you prevented on testing and, and practicing on the bike you were supposed to race on? To reduce costs. If certain factories had a lot more budget, they could just go and test week in week out it costs a lot of money to rent the circuit to use engines all those sort of things to to tires for the tests it all costs money to get everybody there and do it so what they did was structure it so they had only the official tests there that everyone could um, afford the budget for basically yep. and it just stopped the factories from using the the top riders to go out and uh, and get the most testing and the most practice yeah you mentioned something a few moments ago that leasing a tier two bike and that brought to mind the next question which comes out of Formula One. I listened to Nico Rosberg, Formula One champion from a few years back. Describe the difference makers in world-class driving performance as a fractions of a second of differentiation in actual the driver of the car and a much greater factor of differentiation in success on the actual car itself. There's more of a difference in success. Basically, what separates the winners and the losers in MotoGP is the question. Um, there's a much bigger difference between, um, you know, like you said, in the cars, it's uh, the biggest part of, of F1 is the car. The driver makes the final difference, but um, drivers can have a bigger difference between them and they can still be quite close because the car... Uh, can only be driven to a certain uh, limit, I suppose. And a lot of that comes from downforce uh, in particular. Whereas, and also they're strapped into the car, they can only do inputs through brakes, steering, all that sort of stuff. They can't move their body around. Whereas in MotoGP and motorcycles in general, we can alter the way the bike handles, how you load the front and rear by where you have your body position, different size and weight riders, all these sort of things. You can put the bike and the rider in a different position and ride it very, very differently. You know, Formula One cars as well, they're quite a lot wider, so they can, they've got a lot of limitations onto what sort of lines they can take around a circuit. Whereas in MotoGP, we're riding on, you know, a few inches of tyre. We really have a lot of options as to where we can go, where we can find the grip, where you apex the corner. There's so many differentiations with that. So the rider makes a far bigger difference than the bike in MotoGP and motorcycles in general. There is still a point where the bike can make the, the final difference, but um, a good rider on a lesser bike will beat a, a worse rider on a better bike, you know, sometimes without difficulty. But, um, you know, I think there's, there's always a lot more show for the talent in motorcycles than what you get out of out of Formula 1. How does someone start at age four, yes, mm -hmm. get so enthused or exposed to the sport, number one, and then enthused with it to where it becomes a career passion? I think I was kind of um, pressured and forced to, to, to be on a bike, to be honest. I think my parents and my dad in particular was uh, always dreamt of making a career out of it. So Was he a rider himself? He was a rider himself. 
my sister rode as well. She's six and a half years older than me. Uh, so she was already riding dirt bikes when I, when I came into the world and sort of, I was just around bikes. Everyone that was friends of the family, et cetera, they all rode bikes. So I was just sort of growing up in the, the world of it, I suppose. I started riding at three and racing at four. And, um, so being exposed to it from a young age, and like I said, my competitiveness sort of kicked in and I really wanted to do it. I didn't want to race. My first race, I cannot remember it, but, um, there's plenty of people to tell me the story that uh, I was bawling my eyes out on the on the grid of my first my first race. Didn't really want to do it, but uh, as soon as I got out there and did that one, that was it. The the um, the bug had already get set in, <laughs> and uh, the competitiveness of of being on track with others rather than just riding around by myself and and with some friends was um, was very very different. And from that point, just wanted to keep doing it more. One of the more common questions that we get from Altus clients and listeners is how do I spin it like a tour player? Well, the first step is to treat your equipment like a tour player, and that means that you've got the right golf ball and you've got fresh grooves. Visit Vokey.com to see the spin research that Bob Vokey and his team have conducted to better understand how grooves wear over time. After 75 to 100 rounds of golf, you owe it to yourself to test your grooves to make sure that they're still getting maximum spin from your wedges. Find a fitter at Vokey.com for a spin test soon. Even though you may not remember the race, two questions come out of that. Number one, does anyone else remember how you described the feeling of the race that caused you to want to do it more? And the second part of that question is, did you win? Is that what like fueled the desire to do more? No, the, um, the first day I think I, uh, I just finished mid-pack. I don't think anyone ever commented on what my emotions were. They just came back in. I was sort of... Um, probably just smiling my head off and, and wanted to do it. So um, I think after that first weekend, I, you know, from that point on, I just started moving forward in terms of um, progression and everything like that. And it was just then my competitiveness that just sort of took over and, you know, whatever result I got wasn't good enough and I wanted to win. And once you start winning, then, um, then that becomes even more of a drug, I suppose, sure. uh, to a little kid. And then when I won, the difference between me and other kids maybe is that when I won, I just wanted to win by more. Other people sort of start winning and they, that's enough for them just to, to win. It doesn't matter by how much, but through my whole career, didn't matter whether it was a practice session or a race, I wanted to increase that gap. And it wasn't for the fact of getting the advantage over others. It was because that was my, that was my leveling stick. It was my understanding of how far I was going, how much better I was getting. So yeah, no matter whether I won or, or not, it wasn't by enough. And so. do you think that was just something that you had or do you remember conversations with mum and dad that, let's say, grew more of that, that, that competitiveness, that fire to go out there and do more and win by a greater margin? I think it was just inside me, to be honest. And since I've, I've got older in my career and done other things and other sports, I realised that it just wasn't me wanting to and happened to be born to, to be good at motorsport. I think it was just me and my um, my way of attacking anything in life, basically. So it wouldn't have mattered if I went cycling or if I went and did something else. I think I would have been there with that same attitude of yeah. a win still wasn't good enough for yeah. me. Some people are born with that mental drive, I suppose, mm -hmm. uh, to go forward and do things. But no matter how young you are and whether you're born with it or not, you get to a point in your career and your life that you have to start recognizing when it's there or not and 
you know, later in life, uh, later in my career, I struggled with the, the determination. I struggled with the drive to want to get out of bed and train my ass off and go and do all these things, especially th- when things aren't going well. So I think it's during those times that you realize, you know, yeah, you had a, a competitiveness when you were young and a drive that you had, but as you get older and things get more complicated, for me, it was choosing. You always have a choice. For me, it was choosing to improve myself rather than just sitting there and going, why aren't I getting better or why aren't I doing something different? I always chose, and even as a young age, I always chose the path that I wanted to do. I chose that I wanted to be uh, better at this corner or that corner. I didn't have a lot of pride, let's say, when I was younger, and it's something that um, through my career I think is has made me very strong comparison to others and I mean pride as in I'm willing to learn from others I'm willing to to know and admit that I wasn't good enough or I made the mistake pride gets in the way a lot of the time and even from a young age you know occasionally it got in my way and I was you know a little stubborn with it but if I saw somebody doing something better than me I would always want to know how they're doing it watch how they're doing it and then go out there and put my own twist on it if I couldn't do it how they did I would do it as as well as I could put my own twist on it and then always try and improve on that and that showed up how after a race you'd go across to a peer at 9 10 11 years old and ask them how they they made that corner faster than you or nope just watching everything was visual for me for my whole career you know I never went and asked anyone how they did it ever I could always just watch and see what they were doing I did that a lot in my races I would follow people especially if I knew throughout a whole weekend that I was struggling with one area and one corner or one section of track that somebody was just consistently better than me at. I'd get to the race. If I couldn't follow them through practice session, I'd get to the race and I'd follow and watch and see how they were doing it, watch their gear selection, watch everything, how they were using every break, all kinds of different things. And sometimes you just can't match them. It's simple as that. But to minimize the damage, you have to try and close that gap. And um, like I said, I would put my own twist on it if I couldn't do it the way they did. And then, yeah, that's where I said pride wouldn't get in the way, whereas other people will blame uh, equipment, they'll blame whatever reason, their style doesn't suit that or whatever. I never had that. I always found that, you know, the the occasional time pride would get in my way and I'd get a little stubborn. But uh, in general, I would always learn from others around me. What did your time application look like from, let's say, age 5 to 14 when you left for the UK? 168 hours in the week, you were riding a bike. You were on or thinking about racing. How much of that time? Not as much as you'd think. We didn't have a lot of money. So if I was out riding the bikes, that's putting wear and tear on my race bikes. So we really couldn't do that. So there would probably be, you know, the, the occasional um, practice day that we go out and do. I'd love to say that I was on a bike every day, but I really wasn't. You know, we only had our set times and set days that we could actually go and do some practice without putting too much wear on the, on the race bikes because, um, like I said, they, they're not cheap. We, we certainly didn't have expensive ones, but we, we just could not afford to go out and practice and wear them out. So we would race most weekends for a section of the year when I was younger, and then we'd probably take three or four months off where I would probably ride once or twice a week just having fun around backyard or going to a practice day. But we would just go away from racing completely, give ourselves all a bit of a break, I suppose, and and then get ready for the Australian titles towards the end of the year. Yeah, and speaking of the Australian titles, the question comes to mind, and so you're you're feeding it to me now, is there an event, a meet, 
uh, a day that you realized, I'm really good at this? When I was young, I... Um, You're still young, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Um, I, I knew that I was... I, I knew that I could beat all the competitors around me. Occasionally, I did get beaten. And that was in Queensland? Growing up in Queensland? Or that is uh, Australia-wide? Australia-wide. Australia-wide. We, we raced everywhere we could in Australia. I knew I could beat everyone. The occasional time I, I didn't get it right was, um, it was almost a disaster for us. You know, I had some great competitors growing up and, and um, some of them on their day when everything was working well for them, they were bloody, bloody hard to beat. And uh, those, those rare days were, like I said, very bad for me. Yep. <laughs> and that, uh, that just made me... Times of trauma. Chew on it, yes. Yeah. It's, uh, defeat didn't ever sit well with me. Yeah. So Sports psychologists would call that desirable <laughs> difficulties. You need to have defeats, yeah. You need to have it, no matter how much you don't like it. And it, I suppose it was how you bounce back from that. And like I said, if somebody was quicker than me in another class that I was going to be in their age group later in the, the year, if they were quicker than me or look faster, that didn't sit well with me. If, uh, if I got beaten, and I mainly got beaten in state titles. Uh, I only got beaten in a few Australian titles, but in state titles, I got beaten occasionally. Why do you think that was? Not enough pressure. Okay. So, um, you know, I guess I'd go into the race in the weekend a little too relaxed and we also would... We always had old tyres at state titles. We never had new tyres because we'd save those for Australian titles. So we'd, you know, put a piston, we'd put all the new stuff and have everything ready for the Australian titles. But state titles, the bikes weren't always up to scratch. Tyres weren't up to scratch. I wasn't up to scratch. So they were the ones when we did get beaten was, was more state titles. But that was always probably a good thing for me because then I'd come out the Australian titles and not want to lose. So Yeah, and dust them. Uh, most of the time. I, um, I definitely got beaten a couple of times, but it was always you know, down to the final line, so. Yeah. Was your dad the mechanic? Was your mum the mechanic? Were you the mechanic? No, dad was mechanic. Okay. Uh, when I was By trade 14, or? No, not by trade, just. By um, choice. Yeah, because, you know, you don't really have a choice of having a mechanic, especially when you're doing it in budget like we were. Sure. You didn't really have all the luxuries of, of different things. You know, you go to dirt track events these days and just about everyone turns up with, you know, half-decent trailers and nice, fresh new bikes and all that. You know, we were turning up to races back then in a four-by-six box trailer and, and then, uh, you know, 10-plus-year-old bikes, etc. still able to win. So, Is it because these days there's more money in the game as a youth racer or people are just putting more money into? I think there's more money in the Australian economy in general mm. and people just don't seem to think they can they can get there without spending money in certain aspects. So people either race with all the latest equipment most of the time or they don't race at all. And you can get by on a, on a very small budget, especially in dirt track. So it's, it's a fantastic sport basically to, to get yourself through. You don't need the latest and greatest. With motocross even you do, you need new tyres, you need fresh edges on them to, to be able to perform well. Yeah. You do need that, that last bit of horsepower, et cetera, to, you know, carry you through some of the times with motocross you do need good suspension on motocross whereas in dirt track you know we got away with very very basic things so it's it's quite a good sport i suppose to grow people and kids so when you were growing up you were riding dirt track predominantly with some road racing or no road racing at all i didn't road race until i was 14. goodness me and your humility didn't allow it to come out, but just for the audience's sake, for those that aren't familiar with you, at age 12 in the Australian Nationals, 
Yeah, age 12, a single race day. You won five national titles, winning 32 or 35 races that, that day. I just wanted to announce that. And so that was maybe one of those instances that you recognize, yeah, I'm really bloody good at this. <laughs> and I'm going to take it next level. But you speak also to budget. And what I wanted to explore there is going all in, to use the poker expression, pushing chips behind. At 14, your parents said, okay, we're pulling up stumps and we're going to the UK mm-hmm. and we're going to road race. Was there a conversation you remember where your parents were like, we're going to push chips behind you and how did that make you feel? Can you give us an understanding of, because that's a risk, yeah? Massive risk. There is a massive risk. The way it came around was that um, at 14, there was a finally a championship that you're allowed to race in Australia, road race. Normally, the age was 16, which is a little late. All the Europeans have already been road racing since they were 10 or lower, lower when they're on mini motos. So finally, there was an ADCC championship in Australia and we went, got my license, but you needed to join a club to be able to race in Australia. And unfortunately, this club was made up of my previous competitors, fathers, etc. Okay. And they refused my acceptance. Yeah. So therefore, I wasn't allowed back. to race in Australia. Jeez. So that's what basically gave us the, the choice whether we went, uh, we were thinking of going to Asia uh, thinking of Europe, we're thinking of the UK, and we went to the UK because my father could get there through his father, who is who's British. So we um, we managed to get to the UK and and start our road racing career. But um, you know, there was a few roadblocks there that that made it challenging for us for sure. But there wasn't really a moment that um, my parents said, you know, we're going to put everything behind you. I think you know, through my whole career, it was kind of clear. Like I said, I. Even when I was young, they just, they stuck me on a bike. They sort of pushed me through the whole thing, I suppose, living a bit of a, um, a dream through me. And at the same time, you know, they did some pretty incredible things for me to get me where I ended up today. So, um, you know, there was, there was a lot of sacrifice, a lot of family sacrifice. My sister had to stay back in Australia as well. She already had a child back in Australia. She's six and a half years older than me. So. Yeah, she stayed back in Oz while we went overseas and, you know, pursued my career, I suppose. Yeah, and then you get overseas and you start road racing, something you'd never done before. And number, number one question is how different was it? And number two is from 2001, I guess, when you went over there or thereabouts to when you joined MotoGP. Tell me about that evolution of upskilling, getting better at racing, getting better at doing something that you wanted to do for a career at the highest possible level that Mick Dewan and Wayne Gardner did? I suppose road racing was a bit of a, a, a tough thing. We already knew we were doing pretty well in terms of, you know, who we were riding with in Australia. We got um, some good advice from people that I'd been able to ride the 80s with. You know, I wasn't allowed to race, but I was allowed to do a little bit of riding when I was uh, 13. And, um, you know, we knew we were doing okay at road racing. And to be honest, when I was that young, I never sort of thought about, you know, the difficulties that might be ahead. So still at that time, I sort of had no doubt in my mind that, you know, I could make it into the, the top category in MotoGP or 500s at the time and make it there. And then I suppose the, the further you get along into road racing, you know, we, we, uh, we did very well in our first years. We were, were very quick, won championships that we're in, proved that we we're good enough to go into world, cha- um, world championships. But then we had the roadblock of being Australian, um, no sponsorship, no money behind us. So trying to find the the right rides with competitive machinery was then, you know, a, a very big roadblock for us. When did sponsorship come around then? This was all self-funded to what point? We got sponsorship just enough to get by basically and fund racing. 
if we didn't get sponsorship in the first year, in the first probably three months of being in the UK, we would have to come home. You know, just three dollars to one pound at the time was just you know ridiculous. We just couldn't survive it. Big rate under around. But uh, there was a couple of leather. Man- there was a leather manufacturer and a helmet manufacturer that that backed us when we were over there. Gave my dad a job, and um, and that allowed us to get around and get through the championship, get noticed, get picked up for other teams, and get us by those first couple of years. To be honest. Um, before we went to Grand Prix, but yeah, being an Australian, it's um, you know the whole circuit now is very European, and they love their European riders because they get more out of it. Yep. So uh, they don't really want to see an Australian kid, you know, give sponsorship to an Australian kid when they can give it to an Italian, a Spanish, a German kid. So sure. That that made things quite challenging for us at the beginning, for sure, to get our step forward. Yeah. Were there role models along the way as you started road racing that you? sought advice from how to navigate the improvement curve not so much with improvement with things i'd say the people that i learned the most from in terms of um uh, moving forward with my writing was probably one of my team managers lucio Cecchinello, learning how to read data and where i can improve from reading data what so what sort of data are you talking about we can see you know your brake pressures you can see your suspension travels you can see your speed curve so basically uh, when we're putting it back to back against somebody else who's quite fast, you can see where you're gaining, losing, where you're better, where you're worse, where you're breaking too early, too late. All these things you can see and it's quite tricky to understand how to read it at the beginning. So learning how to read that correctly really helped me mm-hmm. learn where I needed to, to pick up speed. Coming from dirt track, I did everything on the rear wheel. You know, you didn't use a lot of brakes. You didn't use the front end a lot. You know, you always wanted to be sliding as much as you could to, to keep off that front end. Whereas road racing is quite the opposite, especially in the lower categories. You need corner speed. You need to rely on that front end. You need to run that speed through the corner, which is uh, which didn't really sit well with me coming from dirt track. So it took a little bit of time to learn those sort of things. Mm-hmm. And essentially, it's why I got better the bigger categories I went up from 125s to 250. And then I got to MotoGP and found my place because more similar to dirt track, I can control the rear wheel. I can feel it through the, the, the speed had more power, which I enjoyed a lot more, whereas the lower categories is where the Europeans grew up, Mm -hmm. running those corner speeds, those small bikes, knowing what they're feeling with that, uh, and that took me a little bit of time to get used to. Yeah. 2007, I guess the many questions one would like to ask about achieving the pinnacle in a sport, first being how did it feel, and then the second being the rebound after you get to the top of the mountain and there's no one to look up to. You're looking down at everyone around you. Can you speak to that? Not really. I've, I've never been that sort of person. Even when I was in dirt track, you said I've, I won all those races in that day and, you know, we were the best in Australia at the time. You know, like I said, I knew I could beat everyone but didn't necessarily stand up and look down upon everyone. That's not, not the message I'm really looking at. Uh, moreover, the message that I think that I'm looking to pull on is you've accomplished so much. You've accomplished the pinnacle in your sport. Yeah. The question that follows would be, did you think about what's next? I think this goes back to win by more Yeah. when I was younger. Mm-hmm. There was never any point that it was going to become boring for me, even if you were able to win every race, which, you know, it's, it's really bloody difficult. Mark Marquez does a good job of, of trying to these days, but still can't quite manage it yet. So I think no matter how, how good we ended up at certain stages, you could always win by more. You can always win easier. You can always do more to make your job easier. And quite honestly, in those first years, especially 2007, I found more relief after wins than, than enjoyment. I think because we'd had so much pressure and 
so much uh, difficulties over the years getting to where we were. Winning races was just like slowly taking weight off my shoulders. Thank God it happened. Uh, yeah. So uh, I got to a point where I was 16, which is my first year of, of world championships on 250 class. And that was the first time in my life that I thought, I can't do this. I can't get to the top. It's too hard. I had a, an engineer that year that was very difficult to work with. And it was my first year in, so I thought he knew best. You know, he'd been there working. Uh, and it was during these years that I realized that experience doesn't, isn't everything, especially if it's not in the right direction. So he nearly ruined my career. You know, I, I thought there's no way I'm going to get further than where I am right now. The year after that, went back to 125s, got in a better team, got in a, with a better uh, engineer, and he brought the best out of me. He was working with me to try and get as much data from me rather than telling me how I should be doing mm-hmm. things. He's wanting to know what I want from the bike and what I want to, to improve things. So that really helped me, but it still seemed to be until I won that championship, there was just a massive amount of weight on my shoulders, probably put there by myself, half of it, that, um, like I said, was just slowly getting released after I, um, after I won race by race. And, and, um, you know, we, we learned a lot over those years. So. So let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners, Under Armour. It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. Was your second world championship a different feeling then in terms of when you kept on winning those races and that accrued to the pinnacle again? Was there more, less relief and more, yeah, uh, this, is, this is like me? I think from 2007 to 11 when I won again, I'd been through a lot in those years, learnt a lot. And one of the biggest things I learnt, and I've, I suppose of not self-discovery, but just how to deal with things a little easier. What a lot of people don't know is that, you know, I used to be curled up on the, on the motorhome lounge. You know, I'd, I, I wanted to die before each race back in 07, 08, 09. I had that much pressure and that much stress that I just, I didn't want to do it ever. Pressure to perform? Pressure to perform. Mm -hmm. And the better grid position I had, so the better the weekend had been going, the more pressure I had. Now, I normally dealt really well with the pressure. As soon as I got out on track, it was gone. I could could sort it. So starting the race, it was the relief valve. Yeah. Did you ever discover a relief valve that happened, that, that helped you level down the pressure before the race started? Basically, something that I learned to live by was you can only do what you can do and you cannot do more than that. And the way that that means for me is don't stress about what might happen or what might come in the future, whether it be good or bad. Just do the best you can, prepare the best you can, and you can't do more than that. So as long as you've given it your all and you've given it your best, be happy with that. Whether you make a mistake and you you crash out or whether you go and win the race, and it really helped me to realize that, um, you know, I didn't have to put so much pressure on myself. I knew that I'd done the training behind the scenes. I knew that I'd done all the hard work going into the race. What more can I do? And it helped me sort of, I suppose, accept defeat a little bit better as well, knowing that, hey, this guy was better on the day. He kicked my butt. You know, they, they got it right better than we did. Time to go to work next week and see what we can do better. You know, it didn't make me any less, didn't give me any less drive. But it certainly helped me go into the races. I could sit on the grid before the race completely stress-free, just knowing that 
as long as I've done my work and I've done as much as I possibly can, I shouldn't be ashamed of whatever result I get. And I think a lot of people would have that inside them, you know, that whole stress of missing that shot or making that mistake in a race and having that in your head is going to train yourself to be thinking about that constantly. Sure. Um, it becomes so a getting heavy that, burden to carry, doesn't it? Exactly. And I learned how to carry that burden, but then I learned how to not carry that burden. Yeah. And then I became a lot more dangerous when I didn't carry that burden. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, I, I used to really almost enjoy the races then. And at times I felt like I could play with my competitors because I knew I had the bike underneath me. I was watching them. I knew where they were good, where they were bad. Learn in the early parts of the race where I could be better. And then, you know, as soon as I got to the front, I could disappear just because everything was working for me and I was comfortable, relaxed. And I thought, well, if I try and disappear and crash, then I made a mistake. It's, you know, I, I can and pick can myself up it. and move on. Yeah, but, right on. Um, but yeah, I got a lot better at um, just leaving it all out. There. That was awesome insight into pressure, but I want to go back and pull on the thread of fear because you might step on the bike and leave pressure behind as soon as the race starts or, th- or through dealing with the pressure by virtue of the strategy of I can only do as much as I can do and I can't do any more, which is fantastic. But yet there is still every opportunity in a race in a congested field or even when you've separated, as you mentioned, that riding hard or making just a minuscule mistake that a crash might happen. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us how you dealt with that fear? Again, I think similar sort of thing. Rather than thinking about possibilities of what can happen, stay in the moment. You know, the way I used to tack my races were lap by lap. So lots of people like to, let's say, um, envision what's going to happen. They like to plan what's going to happen. And when things don't go to plan, what do you do then? So for me, I used to just stay in the moment and like I said, I would reset after each lap. Each lap was a complete reset for me. So I would never think about what might happen or what could happen. I would just stay in the moment of what was happening. Fear, I think, comes from when you've had a crash and the repeatability of it, especially if you get hurt. No matter what, you get hurt. You get a little bit scared of what could happen Uh, again. You get hurt worse, all these things. So... One of the biggest things was um, resetting after a crash, and there's very few riders that were good at doing it. One of them these days is Mark Marquez. I felt I was very good at it myself as well. What did resetting after a crash, after an event, look like? After an event, it's quite hard because you've got no way of getting straight back up and straight back out there. Mm-hmm. But it's that whole thing, and when you get thrown off a horse, get back on and keep going again. Don't, don't show any fear. And that's to yourself, and especially when crashes happen, you generally know what you did wrong Mm -hmm. and it might have just been the smallest mistake. So basically we'd go straight back to the garage, get back out and almost try and go quicker than what you were doing before Mm, Um, because you knew what you were doing beforehand and that little mistake was such a minute mistake so don't make that again Um, or at least try not to. But going back out there and getting on top of it immediately is much better than building back up again, building that confidence I don't believe in uh, after a defeat. I believe it's get back up and go straight back into it. But basically getting straight back up, straight back out there sort of gave you an immediate reset that you didn't have to think about it again. If it's an okay question to ask, I I think that the audience out there is probably pretty curious when you talk about injury. The inventory, I guess, a list of things that uh, you've had to deal with in your career of MotoGP racing or racing just collectively can you list them for us? I got pretty um, fortunate with my career in terms of breaking bones. I've only broken a few, but um, ligaments is where I've done my damage. So 
I've done both ankles, which I've sort of smashed all the Taylor Dome and everything like that. And quite funnily enough, both of those accidents happened uh, after I finished my racing career. Oh, you're kidding me. <laughs> so one, I'd announced my retirement later on in that year. We had a bit of a fault during qualifying and it destroyed my ankle. And we, I cannot remember the name of the ligament that uh, holds your tib and fib together. Um, down the bottom, it broke the bone marrow inside the bib, tib and fib, but didn't break the bone. So I had such an extreme uh, sprain. Yep. My bones have always been strong, but my ligaments pay for it and ligaments never heal. So I've done shoulder. I've had a shoulder reconstruction at the beginning of, not last year, two years ago now. I, I had a shoulder reconstruction because of just years of slight accidents and damaging my um, rotator cuff and all that sort of stuff. And my AC started to go and my shoulder was just dislocating at any time. Same sort of thing on the right here. I've had rotator cuff damage and probably need to get a reconstruction in the future. You know, we've got all sorts of deep, uh, knees, meniscus, all this sort of stuff, uh, damage around. I've got uh, L4, L5 leaking disc, which they told me back in 012 I needed to get fused, yeah. but, um, but I refuse to do it until technology gets a little better and I've got a little bit more experience. But I've got a good uh, physio at home. We keep those injuries at bay. In a previous conversation, you had alluded to the injuries, but you also alluded to the physical toll and therefore the need for strength and conditioning to be in tip-top shape to compete at your best. What's the physical toll that racing 800, 1,000 cc, a 250, I guess, horsepower bike takes on you? It's, um, it's quite hard to explain to people, but our sport is one of the only sports that we don't get good blood flow. So we've got heavy vibrations through the bikes and it's like doing isometric holds mm. because if you think about it, all other sports, you've got running, cycling, all these other things, all these other sports, you're able to, to move your body and arms and legs around and get blood flow. Mm -hmm. Now us on the bike where we don't get blood flow. Relatively fixed position. Very fixed positions and, and certainly not movements to, to create blood flow. Yeah. So we're doing constant isometric holds, which, you know, uh, fantastic for cramp and things like that as well. They're yeah. a nightmare. We've got bikes that are running 120 degrees Celsius. Yeah. Um, so you're getting all the heat soak from that. We're wearing leathers. And when you can get a little bit of air on the straight, we're tucked in behind the screen. So we're just getting all that soak <laughs> off the bike. So you're just basically in a, in a sweat pocket, in a sweat box, doing isometric holds the whole time. Like I said, we're going up to nearly two Gs under, under braking by yourself, you know, not strapped into a harness or anything like that. Same thing under acceleration, doing strange um, positions, I suppose, hanging off the side of the bike, trying to get it up onto to the center part of the tire to create more grip. Mm -hmm. It's very, very tough sport. And then mentally, you're trying to hit lap times within a tenth or two. And if you don't do that, then you basically not won the race. You know, some races it comes a little easier to you. Some races you're on the ragged edge just trying to stay there and, and have a fighting chance to win. So physically it is very, very tough. And we're seeing all the top MotoGP guys basically now being, you know, extremely fit. Considering we've got a sport, we've got injuries that we're doing, so many of the riders now, top-level cyclists or top-level runners or uh, whatever they're doing, it's, it's generally at a very, very high level. It's not just uh, we're training enough to get by. Mm -hmm. They're at a very, very high level just to, to do our sport. And that's a recent evolution? More recent. I would say Mick Doohan changed the game big time back in probably 94 to that 98. Then I think people were fit still then, but I'd say it's probably only over the last 
10, you know, 12 years that it's really ramped up again to a, a very high fitness level. Yeah. Would you lose a bunch of weight in a race? Yeah, I never, um, I never did too much of the testing with things like that. I was a little more old school in the fact that, you know, I'd do my work off season and just keep myself at a level um, during the season and know that I was fit enough. Always ate well. We always watched what we were doing with things like that, but um, we normally had to take care of injuries, etc., etc. So I didn't do too much the experimentation with heart rates and all those sort of things. We may have touched on this in the conversation, but I, I want to hear myself ask the question and give you a chance to uh, reflect on it some more. We talk about performance superpowers. So in the context of MotoGP racing, what traits, what physical or mental skills do the best racers possess that those that are aspirant want to get to be the best need to possess? There are two or three things that come to mind. And again, we may have touched on them in just we need to reiterate it very very tough to be honest again because everybody is so unique in the way they go about their business you know i definitely had my weaknesses what, what would you say they were i would say more with my riding style in terms of i could be a little better in certain areas a little more corner speed like i said that front end that i never really learned how to do compared to the europeans i'd say i could use a little more um anti-wheelie on the rear brake like one of my competitors, Danny Pedroza, was extremely good at. I always said my weaknesses were in comparison to other people, but you couldn't have what everybody else has. So they might not have necessarily been big weaknesses, but on certain tracks and certain days, yes, very much so. Another weakness of mine was probably the fact that my body didn't break bones. It tore ligaments, and ligaments never, never come back to uh, 100%, whereas all the bones are broken of, cause me zero problem once they heal again um, there are worse breaks than others of course but generally bones don't create problems like ligaments do that would have been a big weakness of mine that didn't allow me to put on quite as much bulk because I had some early ligament damage didn't get quite as much bulk and then when you crash that creates more issues and more injuries but I'd say the rest of it was just um, you know weaknesses in my riding style that um, you know I always worked on but could never quite get there and so maybe the, the best way to answer that question as you've, you've done or summarize that is that everyone at the, at the elite level is unique and their strengths, the superpowers, if you will, is knowing what their strengths are and knowing where their weaknesses are so they can improve the flaw, the weaknesses, so to speak, or perform, compete, race in such a way as to avoid being having those weaknesses exposed such that they would not be successful in doing what they're doing. Yeah. So racing career over, what does life look like now for Casey Stoner? Pretty good, to be honest. I mean, uh, I've, I've been struggling the last year and a half now with chronic fatigue, which isn't, uh, which isn't fantastic. But um, family life is fantastic. You know, I've got two beautiful children and a fantastic wife that uh, we get to travel and enjoy now, not travel for work, which mm -hmm. used to be a... Um, I can attest to the size of the smile on his face right yeah. now, folks, as well. <laughs> I, uh, I never really enjoyed the travel for work, but um, I, I actually really hated it. But now I actually really enjoy travel and I get to see places and I get to see them with a different light. You know, my eyes are different. They're, they're more open to the things around me. Whereas when I was traveling for work and MotoGP, I couldn't have hated it anymore. 
I just wanted to just take me to the hotel. I didn't want to go out and see and smell the roses. I just wanted to go to the hotel or to the track and get the job done and go home. So yeah, now I get to enjoy things a little bit more. I get to enjoy my golf, which is... Um, which is the reason we're talking. Exactly. Yeah, we're connected because of golf. So tell us about your introduction and also desire. Like what does the mission map look like for you and the sport of golf? I got introduced to it from, uh, from a friend of mine who uh, worked with us in Grand Prix and we used to go and play, you know, two or three times a year around the world when we had a little bit of time. Normally in Kuala Lumpur in, in Asia, it was quite a few uh, good courses around there. So we'd, uh, we'd go and play there. Never took it really seriously, probably until uh, I think beginning of 2017, I got my handicap, which was like, okay, let's start to, to play a little better now and try and improve myself. And from that moment, I thought, well, I'd love to get the single figures. You know, that's my first goal was to get the single figures, which I got to about four months ago. And that was basically within a year of half of playing golf because I had to have two seven-month slots off, one with a, a separated um, with the shoulder. I had to take a bit of time off and another time I just didn't have time for golf at all. So I had another seven months where I didn't play at all. I'd like to use golf to to see the world a little bit and meet some people i've got massive amounts of respect for the pros out there what they have to deal with having people and spectators and everything right there watching them within feet you know that's got to be a very very tough job you know we were fortunate in our job we had a lot of noise we had a lot of well we had our helmets and we had our leathers and you're racing past it three hundred days <laughs> exactly we could kind of separate ourselves and focus on what was what was there and it's what the pros do in golf, but um, there's definitely a, a different element of pressure, I suppose, with golf and, and having everybody watch you and critique you in comparison to what we did in motorsport where there's not as many people that have the opportunity to do it. So people can't really critique you quite as much as they, you know, they don't really possess the, um, the skills, I suppose, to do what we were doing. Whereas with golf, um, it can very much be taught uh, a massive extent of it so yeah i mean golf is just uh, an incredibly difficult sport there's no way to possibly perfect it and uh, i think i really love that aspect of it that there's just always more to do so yeah i'm, I'm really enjoying the process of getting my uh, my handicap slowly down and um and seeing the improvement come and when we do you know a session like we did recently and and seeing the improvements out of it is just uh you know, it's, it's incredible. I'm glad you found golf and I'm glad that uh, we got connected and I'm glad that golf is an outlet for all of those traits, character traits, mental and physical that you used to be so sex successful in your racing career. One final question. You've been awesome with your time. If there was a message that you had to give back to the 10, 11, 12, 13 year old version of yourself, and it was a general message to all athletes out there, whether they're early in their development, they're in their teenage years, or even if they're a little bit further along, maybe they're almost ready for a professional sport or a professional endeavor outside of sport, what would that message be? I would say um, practice with a purpose. I would say for, for all, you know, young sportsmen coming up through, it's, it's a hard thing for them to see the benefits of practicing with a purpose and making sure that you, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's rather than just go out, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I've got natural talent, I can get this job done. When you get older, it'll, it'll change when you realize that everybody's good. 
you've got to find yourself different from the others. So you've got to work harder at it. You've got to apply yourself more and really look for your weaknesses and find out how you can improve them. Because if you can fix that when you're younger and when you're coming up and through, that's going to put you in a much better position than everybody else around you when, uh, when time comes. Um, it's, it's very hard to see when you're younger, but basically even, even when you're older, it doesn't matter. It's just make sure that you're the hardest worker in the room. Make sure that you're trying to fix all of your weaknesses rather than avoid them, you know, and relish the challenge. It's something that I really work on. Go in there, enjoy it, relish the challenge of whatever it may be. Find your weaknesses and, you know, maybe uh, you can do a pretty good job of reducing that, um, that negativity. Beautiful. There's an expression I use that purpose is the engine that drives all elite performance. That's a great message that you provided us to finish on. Thanks for joining us. No problem. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge. Wow.